We're grateful, Lord, tonight for the privilege that we have of worship. We thank you for this passage in Revelation 4 and how John was opened the door to heaven and revealed the theme of the book of Revelation, which is to worship God, to honor God, to fear God, and to love God. And so I pray tonight as we go through this message that you would that you would cause me to stay out of the way, that you would minister in this room through the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would be made manifest, your presence would be felt, and that we together will be different for having encountered God in this place. And I thank you again for this privilege. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 4, and there's only 11 verses. If you have a Bible, we're not going to be putting it on the screen here. I would invite you to read along. I will be reading from the New American Standard Version, and um, so yours is likely to be different if it's not that. And as, um, as a token of our collective respect for the Word of God, I would ask you to stand as I read this passage. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. And upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front of behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had the face of a man like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And when the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. Sometimes when we make a trip to Africa, we like to stop on the way home in Europe. It's a long way to fly to get there. And while you're going all that distance, it makes sense 
to um, stop and look at something interesting. I went there with my brother John several years ago, and we stopped in London. He'd never been there before. And in London, they have these buses without tops, and you can ride around, and it's about 26 different places you can stop. And most of them have some fairly significant historical interest. So while we were there, we were making this tour, and we came upon um, the um, St. Paul's Cathedral. Now, St. Paul's Church, the original building, was built in 604 AD. It has a tremendous history. It burned in 1666, and they built this magnificent cathedral. And it's remarkable worldwide because it has this huge dome, and it dominates the skyline in London, at least in that part of the city. Now, you can buy a ticket to tour the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral, but we elected to passed on that and we just decided we're going to crash we're going to go in and sit down find a pew somewhere maybe look at some of the statues and they were having a children's choir rehearsal while we were there while we were sitting in the pew and if you can imagine this this church is huge with this huge dome there's a place on it where you can whisper from one side of the of the dome and be heard a hundred feet away on the other side. Such are the acoustics of this place built hundreds of years ago. And so the acoustics were amazing. And I noticed that it took about a full second for the echo to stop after the children stopped singing. And I had this image, this impression, while sitting there at St. Paul's Cathedral, I wonder if heaven is like this with a grand expanse, with the glory. Um, But then you read in Revelation chapter 4, and you can appreciate the fact that um, St. Paul's Cathedral bears nothing to what we look forward to when we spend eternity with God. So Revelation 4 is a break in the book of Revelation. You have the first three chapters, which are the letters to the seven churches. And then you have um, a lot of mayhem in the seals and the trumpets and, and the bowls that occur later in Revelation. But it's like the apostle takes a moment to reflect on worship. He's actually guided by Jesus Christ through a window in the spirit to witness the spectacle of worship in heaven. And that really becomes the point, the subject of what Revelation is about. It's about giving worship to God. I believe that the principal work of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to worship God. I believe that the principal discipline, the principal work of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to worship God. That's what we're here. That's what we're being put here to do. Now, there are other things. There's service and there's witness and there's testimony. But I believe that the worship of God is paramount to why we're here. I think of of um, the story of the woman at the well in John 5 when Jesus meets the, the Samaritan woman and they have this conversation about worship and between the Samaritans and the Jews and Jesus makes this observation. He says the day is coming, the time is coming and now is when God desires worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. 
in spirit and in truth. Now that was written by the same author who wrote Revelation, the Apostle John. And, and I believe in John 11, or correction, in Revelation 4, he gives us a sampling of what that looks like. Of what it looks like to worship God in spirit and in truth. So what are the factors to be considered when we worship God in spirit and in truth? I believe there are three in this passage. Number one, to worship God in spirit and in truth is God-centered. To worship God means that we are God-centered. I think that's obvious from the depiction of the symbols and the people in this chapter. Verse 2 through 6, John describes the throne and depicts the one sitting on it. You notice he doesn't describe a man. He doesn't describe a, a, um, a man looking. He describes it as stone because no man can look on God. We believe that this is God the Father. And John is awed by what he sees and no doubt has difficulty putting words to his expression in writing down what he sees. And so he uses passages from other um, Testaments from the writings of Ezekiel and the writings of Isaiah that uh, compare very consistently. For Isaiah, for example, writes in uh, Isaiah 6.1, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And that's an image that John sees here. He sees uh, the Lord sitting on the throne. Another image is a rainbow. And it's, what's interesting about the rainbow is that it completely circles and circles the throne. Now, what do you think of when you think of a rainbow? You think of Noah. And what does the rainbow mean? It means a covenant. God made a covenant to Noah. The, the interesting thing is that whenever I just saw a rainbow yesterday, it's been raining around here a lot, and you could see a rainbow in the clouds, but you never see the full rainbow, do you? You only see a portion of it. You see a section of it. And the, the Irish have a, have a legend, for example, that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, thinking that there's a point where it ends. But in Revelation, we see the full relevance of God's covenant as complete circle. It never ends and it never fails. Another image um, that um, John describes in this passage is the four living creatures. And this is compared to a passage in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5. There were four living beings, each with the face of a lion, an ox, a calf, ox or calf, an eagle, and a man. And both descriptions are full of eyes, and they have six wings, and they sing, Holy, 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 as depicted by Isaiah in chapter 6, verse 3. Chuck Swindoll, who has written a commentary on Revelation, very, very practical commentary, suggested that these four creatures are seraphim. They are exalted angels. And they're sort of an honor guard between, before the throne of God. And they sit there and they worship God day and night. And God doesn't need protection. It doesn't need a guard. But they exist there to worship God as angels. Now, surrounding the throne is a sea of glass. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, he depicts it as crystal. 
And so you have this scene where you have this rainbow, you have thunder and lightning coming from the throne, and you have the sea of glass, if you, and the crystal, uh, I would imagine, um, accentuates and reproduces the light that comes from the throne. Now just imagine for a moment that we could recreate that scene in this sanctuary. Here we have God the Father, high and lifted up, and his train of his robe fills the temp, fills the sanctuary and, and leaks out into the north, into the lobby here. And surrounding the property is a sea of glass that begins at the, at the apex of the throne. And you have the rainbow that surrounds the um, throne. And you have thunder and lightning and this huge uh, noise coming from the throne. And in front here you have the four living creatures. And they are worshiping and singing, holy, holy, holy. And over here you have 24 elders. There's 24 elders depicted in Revelation. We don't know exactly who they are. That's significant that there are 24 of them. It could be some combination of of the apostles or some representation of Israel and the church having 12 disciples. Uh, We don't know. It's uh, anything we suggest is speculation, but there are three things that we can be certain of. One is they're dressed in white, and that means that they have been redeemed and that they are purified by the blood of Christ. Secondly, they have crowns on their heads, and not only crowns, but they're gold crowns, and that's a symbol of victory, of perseverance. So they have had, uh, they've lived through life, they have endured, they have persevered, and they have been bought with the blood of Christ. And finally, they're sitting on thrones, which suggests that they have authority. They've been given authority. And the, the 24 elders and the four living creatures with all the eagles and the lion and, and all the, the uh, voices that they have are all worshiping God together. Singing, holy, holy, holy. What an amazing spectacle that would be to witness here in our sanctuary um, on, on Sunday morning, or in this case, Wednesday night. So what is the point of all this? What is the point of this image that John depicts? Well, God is on his throne. He was on his throne in the Old Testament, and he's on his throne in the book of Revelation. He is on his throne today. God is a covenant-making God. He makes promises and he keeps them. So no matter what evil or debauchery happens in Israel, in the nation of Israel today, with the evil that is perpetrated there, God is still on his throne. And he is a covenant-keeping God. And he will keep his covenant with Israel. He will keep his covenant with the church He will keep his covenant with you and me. No matter what crisis I'm dealing with, with regard to my health or relationships or finances, God is still on his throne and he keeps his covenant. No matter what questions I have about my faith, what questions I have about my future, what's going to happen to me in the events of my life, God is still on his throne. He is sovereign and nothing surprises him. He is in control of the details of history and my life. We can have confidence that God remains sovereign in our life and in the lives of our nation, in the lives of the church. 
So next time you see you sit in the sanctuary, I might make a suggestion. When we're involved in worship, contemplate that image in Revelation chapter 4. Imagine God sitting on his throne and all the imagery that goes with it, the 24 elders and the four living creatures and the thunder and lightning and the rainbow and the sea of crystal. And imagine God's presence as you worship here in this sanctuary. So the principal work of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to worship God. And one of the ways that we do that is by focusing on God as God the Father, the presence of God on his exalted throne. A second manifestation of true worship, I believe, revealed in Revelation chapter 4 is the worship of the Trinity. God exists in Trinity, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And true worship incorporates the three persons of the Trinity. We have the evidence of God the Father, as as I've already mentioned. God the Son is the voice that John hears beginning way back in Revelation 1. He's the living one who is dead and is now alive forevermore. He is the first and the last. He is the one who holds the keys of death and hell. His eyes are as a flame of fire and his voice is the sound of rushing water. So God the Son is evident from the first verses of the book of Revelation and it is the voice of Jesus, the Son, that invites John in this vision through the doors of heaven. Jesus um, mentions in Revelation 3, at the end of the chapter, just before the beginning of Revelation 4, remember that verse, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice or woman and will open the door, I will come in to him and have fellowship with him and he with me. So it's Jesus that's present as sort of the steward of this worship in chapter 4. Now, the scene also depicts the seven spirits of God. They're in in a candle light, and they're um, represented the Holy Spirit. And sometimes it's useful to use the scripture to interpret scripture. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, it reads, The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that is Messiah, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You go through the rest of that chapter in Isaiah and it gives lists about the manifestation of the spirit of God in Messiah. So you might ask, well, what difference does it make if we consider worship of the Trinity as a manifestation of true worship, the kind of worship that God seeks In another book written by the same Apostle John, he observed, Beloved, let us love one another, 1 John 4. For for love us of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. God is love. God not only loves but he is the personification, the embodiment, the manifestation of love. So here's the question. If God is love, is it possible to be love or to express love without an object of that love? Is it possible 
to be God and express love without an object of that love? Was it necessary, for example, for God to create the earth and the people in order to express that love? The answer is no. God loved from eternity. God loved within the Trinity. God loves, God the Father is the source of love and God the Son gives expression to it in his love and honor to the Father and the Spirit of God manifests that love within the Trinity. One theologian observes that God cannot be love unless there is something for him to love. But if that something were not part of himself, he would not be perfect. He wouldn't be perfect if it wasn't God. The Bible doesn't teach that God needed creation to have something to love because if that were true, he would not be fully with himself without it. Augustine reasoned that God must be love inside of himself, the Trinity. With this in mind, the Father is the one who loves, the Son is the one who is loved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that flows between them. Worship, then, is an expression of love. That's why the Trinity matters. Worship is an expression of love in in his full uh, being as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that love is expressed when we worship God. Consider the courting days uh, when you um, were dating the person that you ultimately married. And can you remember, especially if you're young or when you're young, and your desire is to be with that person. And you can spend an afternoon, you can spend a Saturday, you can spend an entire evening talking about anything and everything. And someone might ask you the next day, well, what did you talk about for so long? And your response would likely be, I have no idea. Because that's not the point. The point is fellowship. The point is the desire to be with that person, the person who is loved. And that, I believe, is what exists with the Trinity. That's what resulted in creation. But it was first expressed within the Trinity. A few uh, verses um, later... Most of us never really give much thought to in a weekend service about the expression of love. Because the interesting thing is it doesn't just stop there. The expression of worship is love toward God, but it's also fellowship with other people that are important to us. When you ever think about when you the service is over and you, you get up and you walk around, you meet with your friends, you have conversation... And they tell you about their week or you tell them about your week and you tell, sometimes the conversation turns to challenges that you're facing. It frequently does. It's kind of like a composite of that prayer letter that we send out every week. And there's this conversation where there's an expression of love. It's fellowship that is a part of worship. We not only express love to God as the Trinity, but we express love to his bride, the church. And that's part of worship. Uh, we, we don't think of it as anything significant when we're meandering out there in the lobby and maybe getting a cup of coffee. But that is a part of our worship experience because it expresses love 
to the bride of Christ. Think about that next time you attend a worship service and you participate in the worship of God in this sanctuary. Think about the presence, the manifest presence of God as revealed in scripture and described by John in his fourth chapter of Revelation. But also think about a part of, an extension of that worship is the, the relationship and the fellowship that you have with people afterward. I wonder if we thought about that consciously, if it would change how we manage that conversation. If we would be more sensitive to the needs expressed in their comments. If we would be open to opportunities to pray with them, to support them and to encourage them. And if perhaps we would um, even think of some practical need that we could meet. So the work of the disciple of Jesus Christ is to worship God. That's why we're here. And we've expressed that in two ways so far. One is the worship of God the Father as revealed in Revelation chapter 4. And the second part is the worship of the Trinity. To worship God as a Trinity and think of him consciously as the three in one manifest their presence in this room. There's a third suggestion that I would have. Um, Point number three, if you're writing this down. Uh, The disciple of Jesus Christ worships God with a whole heart. The disciple of Jesus Christ worships God with a whole heart. In the first part of Revelation chapter 5, there's this account of the scroll that is apparently being held by God the Father. And one of the angels, it could have been one of the seraphim, says in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the seal, to, to look at the scroll and to open the seal? And no one is found who is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book and to look at it. And I began to weep greatly, John writes. John is clearly moved emotionally by what he has experienced in this event in Revelation 4. So let's go back now to that image that we had earlier about the presence of God in this sanctuary with all the, all the uh, symbols and images that accompany it. There's a rainbow that's completely encircles the throne and there's lightning and thundering and sea of glass and all the rest. And the four living creatures each face each other um, as a man, an eagle, an ox, and a lion. And all together in unison they sing. Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you have created all things, and because of your will they existed and are created. Now imagine that this happens in the sanctuary every weekend. Do you suppose you'd get bored with it? Maybe a little picky about some of the details? You know, those lions were a little loud this week. I think the eagles might have been off key. And do we have to sing the song, the same song every week, week in and week out? If we had this concept of of Almighty God present in our worship, I doubt very much that we would have those thoughts. In fact, I suspect we would be uh, disappointed when the worship time ended. 
and we would be looking forward to the next week when it would begin again. Jesus said to the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The concept is worshiping with our whole heart and devoting our thoughts to the worship of the Almighty God. We have a pair of doves at our property. And you know they're doves because, well, they look like doves to begin with. But also, when you see one of them, you know that the other one is never very far away. And there's one that gets on the top of a snag on the tallest tree in our property. I only assume it's the female. I don't know. It doesn't matter to me. It matters to them. And evening, each evening as the sun goes down, she sings. And what's interesting to me is that she puts her, puts her whole force of her body. When she takes a breath, all of her feathers fluff. And when she sings, the body contracts and the beak is open wide. It's like she puts her whole force of her body into that singing. And I always think of Revelation 150, the very last verse in the correction, not Revelation, Psalms 150, the very last verse in the book of the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And I think of that when I see that little dove. So the work of the Christian is to worship God. We do that by focusing on the uh, image in our mind of God the Father. We worship the Trinity and we worship with our whole heart. I grew up in a modest little church in the Yakima Valley in the state of Washington. And... I was just little, and I remember this. We had a really old pipe organ. Now, the legend was that the pipe organ had been carried across the Oregon Trail from back east someplace on a freight wagon. I don't know that that really happened. I think it could just be a legend. But what I did know is this thing was a wreck. This pipe organ was old, and it was always falling apart. There would be a couple of weeks at a time when, when it wasn't played during the worship because they were looking for some part and frequently they had to have the part manufactured because nobody made those parts for that old of an organ anymore. But our congregation loved that pipe organ. And our congregation loved Mrs. White, Mrs. Eleanor White, who played it, did a, played it very well. And usually when Mrs. White was playing the organ, she played it very carefully. Never got too loud, never got too fast, and she certainly didn't press the keys with any vigor or the pedals especially. But that all changed at Christmas time. We had a tradition in our church where we would sing, the choir would sing a cantata. Those of you who've been in church for a long time can remember John W. Peterson and his Christmas and Easter cantatas. The choir would sing, and then after that, um, the pastor would make some remarks, typically for the benefit of the visitors who had attended the service. And all the kids were waiting for the end of the service because the ladies' ministry had produced little 
lunch sacks with chocolates and candy cane and popcorn balls. We couldn't wait to get to that, but before we got to that, we had to do the last, the last event of music for the Christmas season. And that was the playing of Handel's, um, the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. And it was played by the piano. Mrs. Fisher played the piano and Mrs. White played the organ. They were both excellent musicians. And they would play it antiphonally. So the piano would do a phrase of music and then it would be responded by the organ. And later in life, I thought of it as kind of an ecclesiastical version of dueling banjos. Because one would would uh, depict the other. And as they got into the music, it would stop very low and very slow, but they would pick up the pace. And as they got farther into the music, Mrs. White would pull out a stop. And it would get a little louder. The, the notes would become a little more blended because the pipes all featured different notes, different kinds of tones. And as it got farther into the music, then more stops would come out. Now, if you've ever, if you recall listening to the Hallelujah Chorus, there's a phase where, uh, at the end, where they sing, He shall reign forever and ever, hallelujah. And it seems like it goes on for days. The hallelujah and he shall reign goes on and on and on. And it gets louder and louder and faster and faster. And by this time, both keyboards are on it full gonzo. And then you get to the very end. Hallelujah. And by that time, Mrs. White has all the stops pulled out. And I can just imagine in mind's eye, wondering if the the glass and the church windows were going to crack. Or looking at the chandeliers and imagining in mind's eye that they were maybe quivering just a little bit at the volume of the music. And it seemed to me that the angels themselves ascended into our little sanctuary to view the spectacle. I thought of, of deacons with white knuckled grips on their hymn books expecting that little pipe organ to burst into flames at any minute. And then it was over. And every time I hear, we, my dad had a wall and sack tape recorder, reel to reel, and he recorded it one year and we played that for years in our home. And I gained a love for Handel and especially his Messiah. Whenever I hear that, I think of Mrs. White. That has become for me a holy moment because of the powerful words of that Music. Handel wrote that whole Messiah in 28 days. It's an amazing talent that he must have had. Each of us has a vision of the manifest presence of God in our lives. And it could be this image that John depicted in Revelation 4. God high and lifted up with his train of his temple filling the the train of his robe filling the temple. It could be a crisis event in your life where God's presence was felt peculiarly, unusually strong. And you reflect on that and you worship God because of his presence at that time in your life. For some people, it's a natural scene. It's the beauty of of a mountain lake or a river or, um, Uh, Just anything from nature. For some it can be a verse or a song. 
But something in your mind triggers the presence of God in your heart and mind. We worship God in spirit and in truth. And I encourage us tonight as we think of God's presence in our worship, as we worship God in spirit and in truth, as a, as a duty, as the function of the disciple of Jesus Christ. We worship God the Father. We worship God the Trinity. And we worship him with our whole heart. That we bring those thoughts to bear as we reflect upon the worship of God in the sanctuary. It could be something as unusual and mundane as a rusty old pipe organ and Mrs. White. We thank you, Lord, tonight for the privilege again that we have to be together. We thank you for the love of Jesus Christ that we share in common. We thank you for the desire of this church and its ministry and prayer and seeing the lost reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we recognize that if we are to be effective in our ministry, in our testimony, we must be devoted to the worship of God. And so we pray that you will help us to bring those thoughts to mind that prompt our worship of you and that we will be faithful in our love of you and the love of your church to worship God in spirit and in truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.